You may be seated. Before we begin the sermon, I've been reliably informed that we have a sighting of our newest member, Dara McCorkle. Uh, Dara, would you, would you stand? We have to do this. So Dara is back there. Dara's new member. So welcome, Dara. And we've now fulfilled all righteousness and introduced all four of our new, new members. So thank you for humoring us. Uh, let's pray before we turn to the Word. Oh God, we pray that uh, by your Spirit, we might hear you speaking this morning in your Word. Instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians 6, uh, this passage this morning draws the, the main body of the book of Galatians to a close. The, the next text uh, is Paul's summary and concluding remarks, the end of the book, and we'll, Lord willing, look at that next week. Now, <clears throat> since the beginning of chapter 5, Paul's been discussing what the gospel blessings of being declared righteous in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit produce in the lives of believers. That's what one of my heroes, Horatius Bonar, once called the holy life of the justified. As we've seen the past several weeks, there, there are two ways in which we can err when it comes to understanding our spiritual life. One error, legalism, says that a holy life leads to justification. Our standing before God is dependent on us being sufficiently obedient. And the first four chapters of Galatians, and especially chapters 3 and 4, have systematically dismantled that error in great detail. But as we learn, there's, there's another way that we can err when it comes to the gospel, and that's the error of license, which says that justification does not and need not lead to a holy life. It says because we're saved by grace, we can sin all we want, indulge the desires of the flesh, all while waving our get-out-of-hell-free card. Here in chapter 5, Paul's been addressing, or not here in chapter 5, I suppose before in chapter 5, Paul's been addressing that error as well. And that error takes up less space in Galatians than does this problem of legalism because legalism was the more immediate, pressing threat to the Galatians' well-being. It was legalism that was the other gospel to which the Galatians were turning. Even so, chapters 5 and 6 consist of Paul offering correctives to this other error as well so that we don't veer from legalism into license. Now, chapter 5 was largely a, a theological and, and conceptual explanation of, of the nature of this spirit-led life and its conflict with the flesh. Even when Paul listed the fruit of the Spirit, as we saw last week, it's, it's more conceptual. The fruit of the Spirit are dispositions that characterize those who are led by the Spirit. But as they're listed, they're not concrete actions in themselves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness find expression in actions. And while this, leaving it sort of at the level of, of, of concept, allows us to apply these fruit in, in a wide range of circumstances, at some point we are left with the question, so what does this life of being led by the Spirit actually look like? When the rubber meets the road, what does it look like to love others? 
to rejoice with others, to be at peace with others, to be patient with others, to be kind to others, and so forth. Our passage this morning is perhaps the most concrete and practical set of instructions in the whole book for what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. What we read here is an illustration of what the fruit of the Spirit, a life that is led by the Spirit, looks like in action. So we're going to start this morning in verses 7 and 8 where Paul shares a proverb about the Spirit-led life. And then verses 9 and 10, Paul draws out a principle from that proverb of what the Spirit-led life looks like. And then back to verses 1 to 6, we outline several practices of the Spirit-led life that exemplify that principle. Right? So, proverb about the Spirit-led life, a principle for the Spirit-led life from that proverb, and practices of the Spirit-led life from that principle. The predominant point that Paul makes here is that the litmus test for what it means to be led by the Spirit is doing good to others and especially other believers. The litmus test for being led by the Spirit is doing good to others and especially other believers. Let's begin with verses 7 and 8, Paul's proverb about the Spirit-led life. Look with me at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Paul prefaces this proverb with a solemn warning. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And in the flow of the the passage, it feels a bit abrupt. Don't be deceived. About what? Paul here is addressing the the deceitfulness of our indwelling sin, our flesh, which would be happy for us to give up our legalism if we would only exchange it for license. Our flesh would be perfectly happy for us to claim to have fellowship with Christ while we walk in the darkness, as we read in 1 John 1. We'd be perfectly happy for us to claim to have fellowship with Christ, to claim to be free from the law, to claim to be justified by faith, but in reality to have no spiritual life. You can mimic holiness like a parrot mimics sounds. It doesn't come from a spirit-renewed heart. There's no reality behind or beneath it. It's just a veneer. And so this is a warning against hypocrisy pretending and presuming to be saved on the outside without the accompanying uh, internal transformation. I'll be clear, and Paul makes this point repeatedly in the book and in the rest of his letters, internal transformation doesn't produce or cause our salvation. A holy life does not produce or cause justification, but it does necessarily accompany salvation. And so Paul's warning is, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And we might read that and think, well, it sure seems like God is actually mocked quite a bit. But the idea here is that that we mock God by our hypocrisy. We hold Him in contempt. We convince ourselves that we can get away with it, that we can somehow outwit Him. 
and sneak in the back door of salvation through a loophole of our own creation. But God cannot be mocked. That is, God cannot be outwitted or made a fool of. There's no cheat code that we can enter that allows us to indulge in the flesh and live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, walking in the ways of the world and yet outsmart God and get off on a technicality. To establish this, Paul states this proverb, this truism that God has built into the fabric of creation. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever seed you plant, that's what's going to grow. It's quite similar to what Jesus himself said, a tree is known by its fruit. Your actions reveal the truth of your spiritual condition. And in the end, you will reap the harvest that you have sown. What you plant is what you get. In verse 8, Paul elaborates on exactly what he means by this proverb. A man reaps what he sows, verse 8, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So you can either sow to please the flesh or sow to please the Spirit. These are metaphorical ways of speaking about living according to or indulging or gratifying the desires of the flesh on the one hand, or living according to walking by, being led by, keeping in step with the Spirit, On the other hand, if you sow to please the flesh, you'll reap destruction. If you sow to please the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. Two different actions that reveal two different spiritual conditions and result in two different spiritual destinies. It's quite similar to the statement that Paul makes in Romans 8.13 that we've looked at for the past few weeks. It's been popping up. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And you don't gain eternal life by putting the flesh to death. But to put the flesh to death is characteristic of those who have life. Just as living according to the flesh is the character of those who are bound for condemnation. In the same way, we don't gain eternal life by sowing to please the Spirit, but sowing to please the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, is the character that is produced in those who have been made alive by the Spirit. So for sowing to please the flesh, by which he's probably discussing a a pattern of unrepentant, sinful indulgence, then it's evidence that we are still in the flesh. Such action would render our credible profession of faith uncredible. Now, if that's the case, then how ought those who are led by the Spirit live? He's answered that already. Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, Paul is going to draw a a principle for the Spirit-led life out of this proverb. The primary way that Scripture here calls us to sow to please the Spirit is for us to do good. Which brings us to verses 9 and 10. A principle of the Spirit-led life. Let's start in verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, 
For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. See that that principle that Paul draws from the proverb twice in these verses. Let us not become weary in doing good, verse 9, and let us do good to all people especially those who belong to the family of believers, verse 10. That's where we find the thrust of Paul's point here, that the, the, the litmus test for what it means to be led by the Spirit is doing good to others, and especially to other believers. You see, in verse 8, he says that if we sow to please the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. And then in verse 9, he says, if we do good, we will reap a harvest. So sowing to please the Spirit and and doing good are parallel phrases that both result in reaping this harvest of eternal life. So we can conclude that in this text, at least, Paul has in mind that sowing to please the Spirit is doing good. Doing good here is basically equivalent to what Paul said in Galatians 5.14, that the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. To do good to others is to love them as yourself. To, as Jesus said, to do unto others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Loving others, doing good to them, isn't about doing what they want, necessarily, or about doing what you want. It's about doing what is for their good for their good as defined by God, not by us, and doing so for their benefit as opposed to your benefit. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, defined love as seeking the good of another for another. There's a a way of doing good to others that's actually just a way of seeking benefit for yourself. But but true love seeks another's good without reference to how it benefits self, simply out of a desire for the other's welfare. We'll come back to that in a few moments, to some examples of what that looks like. That's the the content of verses 1 to 6. But before we get there, I want you to notice a few things that he says in verses 9 and 10 about, about this call we have to do good. First, notice what he says about how we are to do it. We are to do good perseveringly. I looked up, that is a word. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. And in so doing, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So Paul exhorts us not to become weary in doing good to others, specifically because it can be wearying to do good to others. Living according to the flesh is easy. It takes no effort whatsoever. Walking by the Spirit, on the other hand, is is different. Jesus himself said that the road that leads to destruction, sowing to please the flesh, is broad and easy. And on the other hand, the road that leads to life, sowing to please the Spirit, is narrow and hard. It can be wearying to do good because... Because you won't be celebrated for doing it. 
at least not by the world. Because what the world calls good and what God calls good are often quite different. If we're truly seeking to love others and do good to others, it is likely that the world will characterize us as hateful. Because what it has called good, God has called evil. If you do good to others, the world will not cheer for you. And it can be wearing to do good because you won't be rewarded, at least not immediately. See, the flesh desires to live a a life of selfish indulgence. It only does good to others in order to gain something for itself. It seeks its own reward, like the Pharisees who blew the trumpets in the marketplaces to announce when they were giving money to the poor. What did Jesus say of them? They have received their reward in full. We know we who walk by the Spirit must do good to others with the knowledge that our reward for doing so is not found in this life. The flesh wants what it wants and it wants it now. Sowing to please the Spirit, seeking the good of others, means acknowledging that we won't receive reward for it from God until the life to come. That those accolades will not come from men, but from God. So it can be wearying to do good, but we're fueled in our perseverance by God's unbreakable promise that we will reap a harvest at the proper time. God has promised glory and honor and peace to those who don't give up in doing good. And so, though we are weak and it can make us weary, we ought to persevere in it. So how we are to do good, we're to do it perseveringly. And notice Paul also specifies to whom we are to do good. Verse 10, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So there's in the first place a a call, a general call for Christians to seek the good of all people. All people, regardless of age, race, culture, sex, religion, political affiliation, mental or physical ability, and any other criteria by which we divide up the human race, all people are made in the image of God and as such are worthy of dignity and value. As the body of Christ on earth, Christians are to represent the benevolent love of God toward his creation and seeking the good of all those who bear his image. And of course, the ultimate good for them, for anyone, would be to, for them to have eternal life by knowing God through Jesus Christ. But doing good to them can't be reduced merely to evangelism. It can't exclude it, but it can't be reduced to it. It must include, as our statement of faith says, showing care for one another, compassion for the poor, and justice for the oppressed. And while the church's mission, properly speaking, is to make disciples of Jesus among all people, it's nevertheless our responsibility as disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded and to seek to do good among all people, whether or not they are Christians, and frankly, whether or not we agree with them on anything. You see here again how perfectly consistent Paul's teaching is with that of the Lord Jesus who told us not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. 
And this kind of love, this kind of doing good, even, even to our enemies, is not something that God calls us to do, but that He doesn't do Himself. He has done just that, hasn't He? Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. So as God loved those who were ungodly sinners and enemies, us. And in fact, because He did so, we too are to love others, including the ungodly sinners and enemies. Being led by the Spirit means seeking to do good to all people without exception. But Paul also says here that we are to do good especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We have a particular responsibility to seek the good of other Christians. And above all, to do so with those that we are committed in a local church. The term family here gives us a helpful picture of the kind of commitment that Paul has in mind and we saw earlier in the book of Galatians that to trust Christ does not only result in justification and eternal life. This gospel, which promises a rich inheritance to those who believe, does not leave us as orphaned heirs. We're adopted into the family of God. God becomes our father. Christians become our brothers and sisters. And by His Spirit, we're being transformed to share in a family likeness, that of Christ. And as a part of this new family, we bear a special responsibility to and for one another. Now, that doesn't mean that our responsibility to do good to all people is, is abrogated or lessened, but it, but it does highlight that we have this unique family bond that compels Christians to seek one another's good most specifically. To extend the family metaphor, think of it this way. I would say that simply as a human being, I have a I have a responsibility to seek what is good, say, for all children that I might come across. But I have a special obligation to seek what is good for my children in a way that goes far beyond the obligation I have to anybody else's. It's the same with the church. We certainly have a unique uh, or a, a, a responsibility to seek good for all people. We have this unique obligation to be especially proactive in seeking what is good for one another. It's one of the main reasons that we value something like church membership. Becoming a member of a local church is saying that you want to commit to this particular branch of the family, that you want to take responsibility for seeking the good of these believers, and that you want them to take responsibility to seek your good. It matters because when it comes to the actual outward expression of this call to do good, to love, we are necessarily limited by time and space and energy and resources. And so rather than simply saying, oh, I just, I just seek the good of all Christians and leaving it as an abstract idea, membership particularizes the command to love by giving you specific names and faces to whom and for whom you are responsible to do good and who in turn share that responsibility for you. Now, if we're going to do good to others, and especially other Christians, if that's the, the litmus test for what it means to be led by the Spirit, then, 
What does doing good to others actually look like in the trenches? It brings us to the third point. So Paul stated a proverb about the spirit-led life. You reap what you sow. He drew a principle from that proverb. Let, let us do good. And now he outlines several concrete practices of the spirit-led life that exemplify that principle. Certainly doing good goes beyond these things that he mentions, but he, but he mentions four practices that are characteristic of doing good. Possibly because these were things that needed to be addressed in Galatia. We don't have the specific information about that. It's possible that's why he mentions these and not others. In the context, he's, he's, it seems like he's thinking specifically not of what it looks like to do good to all people, but what it looks like to do good to those in the church. Now, the last of these is in verse 6, and I'm only going to mention it briefly here. The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. One of the ways in which we do good to the family of believers is to provide for those who give them instruction in the word. And all I will say on this is that my family is very thankful for the generosity that this congregation shows to its instructor. And since saying more might be self-serving, we'll move on. The other three practices we'll consider in a bit more detail. And, and, and each one, you'll notice, is somewhat countercultural. See, first, doing good to other believers means restoring those in sin with gentleness. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Sin is serious business, and especially so among God's people. We're called to be holy as God Himself is holy. But we do sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. We do sin. The flesh wars against the Spirit. And thanks be to God that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But the church is to be a holy people, not sinless, but a society of justified, repentant, holiness-pursuing sinners. And when a member of that body sins and persists in sin, it's like dislocating a joint. The body ceases to function properly as it should. So when a professing Christian persists in sin, there's a, there's a, prop, uh, a process for popping that joint back into place, calling them to repentance. That's what we call church discipline. It begins with going to that person, speaking to them in love about their sin, and if that brother or sister continues in sin, then you go with one or two others, and eventually it becomes a matter for the for the whole church, and in the most extreme circumstances, this dislocation results in amputation, removing someone from membership and barring them from the Lord's supper because they have discredited their credible profession. But this isn't punitive. The aim of church discipline isn't punishment, it's restoration. Church discipline is, is actually a way in which we seek to do good to others. As those who profess to be Christians, we know that, that the greatest good for a Christian is to walk in the light as God is in the light, to have fellowship with Him and with one another. 
And so our goal in confronting unrepentant sin, taking the steps outlined by Jesus for disciplines, Jesus, you can read this in Matthew 18 as Jesus lays out these, these steps. The goal is the spiritual good both of the person who's caught in sin and the congregation as a whole. Now, Paul discusses this here, and his focus isn't on the exercise of discipline so much as it is with the restoration of the sinner. Those who live by the Spirit, or literally those who are spiritual, by which I think he means those who live by the Spirit, those who live by the Spirit are to make every effort to restore fellowship to those who have sinned, seeking to bring them to repentance. Notice who it is to do this work of restoration. It's not a special class of super-Christians. It's not just the pastors or elders. It's all those who've been made alive by the Spirit. So whether it's the first stage of personal exhortation, the final stage of congregational excommunication, or any stage in between, every Christian bears this responsibility to seek to restore those among them who are caught in sin. Now, this is different from the ways of the world. The world has its own form of church discipline for its own kind of heresy. If you're found to have done or said anything objectionable, apparently at any point in your life, anything that opposes the cultural orthodoxy, you are mercilessly excommunicated by the world. You're canceled. And in general, there's no recourse for such discipline. Is there? No, no chance of repentance, no hope of restoration, no possibility of redemption. You're, you're cast out, blacklisted, burned. And while the church of Jesus Christ must take sin and holiness seriously, we are called to be a countercultural community of humility and grace, not cancellation. Those who continue in sin, even those who are excommunicated, are not to be shunned like lepers. We're to seek to restore them by appealing to them, challenging them, warning them, and exhorting them in love. Paul makes the point of saying that we should do this, uh, this restoring work gently. And that word gently has, a, has sort of a, a crossover with the word humbly. We just as easily translate it humbly, and I think that, that captures the idea well. We restore others both gently in terms of our demeanor towards them. And we do it in humility, not standing over them in smug spiritual superiority. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, concerned for their welfare with the knowledge that we ourselves are not immune from the deceitfulness of sin. And we who work to restore others may, in fact, ourselves need to be restored in the future. So what do we do when other Christians sin against us? We cancel them in our hearts? I'm going to have nothing to do with that person. They are dead to me. Do we seek to restore them with humility and gentleness and love? Put it differently, when a brother or sister sins, does your response look more like the deeds of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? We do good to others by seeking to restore those in sin. We do good to others also by bearing their burdens alongside them. We do good to other believers by bearing their burdens alongside them. Verse 2, 
carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We all have burdens of various kinds. Some of them are related to our health, others to jobs, finances, family, friendships, relationships. Some are physical, some are emotional, some are mental, some are temporary, some are chronic. Some are the result of our own sin, and many are the result of living in a fallen world. We all have burdens we carry, every one of us. Because it's a feature of our Western individualism to go it alone, we think that we need to carry our burdens by ourselves. That there's no one to help, and even if there were, it would be a sign of weakness to ask for it. The world tells us to suck it up, to pull our own weight, lest we be considered freeloaders and a drain on society's resources. We were never meant to carry these burdens alone. God has placed us into a family of believers in order that we might help one another carry our burdens together. So just as the church is to be a place of grace and not cancellation, it's also to be a place of mutual care, not mutual self-sufficiency. Friends, it's our responsibility not just to sympathize with those among us who are burdened, but to help them bear those burdens. And Paul says this fulfills the law of Christ. This is what truly expresses love for one another. We do it because it is what Jesus has done for us, doing more than just sympathizing with our plight, but actually bearing the weight of our sin on our behalf, giving freely to us without demanding repayment. We don't get an invoice from Jesus saying it's time to pay up. And he didn't do it begrudgingly, but gladly because of his great love for us. And so also we ought to do so for one another. And this means that we must not only be willing to help our brothers and sisters carry their various burdens, it also means that we must be willing to allow our brothers and sisters to help us carry our burdens. And I think for some of us this is the more difficult side of the equation. Helping others could be a virtue, but for some reason we feel like allowing ourselves to be helped is a vice. But if you're unwilling to help others, or rather if you're unwilling to allow others to help you bear your burdens, you're not only robbing yourself of the blessing of God's help through them, you're also robbing them of the blessing of being able to help you and so fulfill the law of Christ. So to say, oh, I don't want to be a burden, it might sound humble, but it's actually quite proud. It's to say, I don't really need your help, and I don't really need God's help. Because friends, very often the way that God provides his help to us is through his people. If we're to walk by the Spirit, we must be humble enough to receive the help that God has provided for His people in and through the congregation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, in the body of Christ, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Doing good to other believers means bearing their burdens with them and allowing them to help you bear your burdens. So who can you help bear their burdens or what 
burdens do you need to be willing to let others help you carry? Finally, doing good to other believers means not evaluating yourselves against them. Look at verses 3 through 5. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one will carry their own load. There's a lot that we could unpack there, but the main thing I want you to notice is that Paul's instruction here is about proper self-evaluation. So we do good to others when we don't compare and evaluate ourselves against our brothers and sisters in Christ. How does that do good to them? Think about it this way. Evaluating yourself against others, and especially others in the church, leads either to pride or coveting. Either I evaluate myself compared to you and deem that I am superior to you in some way and I become proud. Or I deem that you are superior to me in some way and I find myself coveting what you are or what you have. In both cases, I have turned you, a beloved brother or sister, into an object for competition. It's sibling rivalry in the family of God. But the Spirit-led life is not one of rivalry. We're not jockeying for class rank. We're not being graded on a curve. Because the, the standard against which we are judged is not one another, it's God Himself. So when we use others as the standard against which we evaluate ourselves, our pursuit of holiness becomes something that might seem more manageable. Not least because the standard is reduced from perfection, who God is, to just being a little better than the next guy. It's a pretty low bar for holiness. But to evaluate ourselves against others does no good to them, nor does it do any good to us. Because in the end, Paul says, each one will carry their own load. It might sound odd considering Paul has just said we should bear one another's Burdens. I think he's talking about something slightly different here. I think here he's talking about a load that we alone, that no one else in the church can bear with us, and that is our judgment before God. In the end, we will be held to account for ourselves without reference to anyone else. When we stand before God, we'll be evaluated not on the basis of who we are in comparison to others or what we have done in comparison to others, but on the basis of the perfect standard of God's own righteousness, a standard we read in Romans 3 that we have all failed to meet. Thanks be to God that while we cannot judge ourselves against our brothers and sisters, nor can they bear the burden of our judgment for us, the one against whose righteousness we will be evaluated, Christ, carried the burden of our judgment for us and has given us his perfect righteousness, so that at our judgment, we who trust in Christ will be dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So we do good to others when we don't compare ourselves to them, but but look instead to Jesus as both the standard of our righteousness and the Savior from the judgment that we alone deserve to bear, and that He is born in our place. We seek the good of others and especially other believers is a litmus test for whether or not we are in step with the Spirit. 
In the end, the outward evidence of walking by the Spirit, the, the identifiable fruit of justification by faith alone is how we love others, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are freed and empowered now to sow to please the Spirit because Christ reaped what we had sown, our sin, that we might reap what we had not sown, righteousness and life in His name. Therefore, let us do good. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you have not counted our sins against us, but have counted them instead as punished in the death of Christ, and that you have counted his perfect righteousness to us and have made us alive by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you might, by your Spirit, lead us, guide us, cause us to walk in your ways and do good to others, especially to one another in the body of Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?